You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. got the altar stoked now it's beginning to smoke so uh, we're going to get it hot enough to where we're going to put Rick Burgess up there uh, (laughs) next service so they're just getting it ready last week I shared with y'all a number of people it just seems like this happens to be the time of year where there's so many things that are happening so many people let me um, get you to pray for a few folks right now uh, Brody, um, Brody Simpson had surgery week before last. I think Brody's eight or nine years of age. And it was really the doctors trying something to keep from doing a, a more extensive surgery. So just remember Brody uh, and pray that uh, what the doctors have done, the surgeons have done, will uh, work. Miss Banks had surgery this past week and is doing well. And um, we had two young guys this week whose mothers passed away. One was Corey Wilson's mother passed away, if you'll keep him in prayer. And Ryan Causey's mother unexpectedly in the middle of surgery passed away. So uh, let's just go to the Lord and remember them. God's called us together to pray for one another. We're a family. We're no more a family um, than especially when we do this. When we stop and we pray for one another, lift one another up. Father, we want to do that. You're the God of all healing. You you are, as I have prayed before, you are Jehovah Rophe, the God that heals. You are Jehovah Jireh, the God who is there for these people. Whether they're going through surgery or have been through surgery or whether they are facing a time of grief, you are there. You're Jehovah Shema. You're the God who is There you provide and you are there. Uh, You're in our tomorrows. You're in that operating room. You're in that recovery room. You're, Father, in that uh, lonely home now when uh, the presence of someone is gone. So, Lord, we want to be faithful to remember these in our fellowship that uh, need prayer at this time. So we lift them up to, to you and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to thank Denny. Denny worked hard on this. Um, this. This is actually the size of the altar uh, that uh, was made for the tabernacle. Um, and I'll get to all of that. These are the horns that are on the altar. I'm going to talk about that as well. And the poles uh, that were inserted, they picked the whole thing up. It, there was no bottom to it. It rested on the earth. And um, I'm going to drop one point this morning, so you'll have to listen tomorrow morning to the recap, and I'm going to give you the third point, and it'll kind of point to the fact that there was nothing but earth down here, so there was no bottom to this whole thing. They do believe that there was a shelf, but we don't know, so we didn't ask Denny to do this, that there was a shelf built all the way around. It speaks of a compass, something that encompassed the uh, altar 
And um, we believe it might have been a step. We just don't know that the priest could stand on. There would have been earth leading up to it, a ramp leading up to it, not stairs, because God's word says no stairs, but a, a ramp of earth that would be piled up that would lead up to the very top of this. Now, I want to show you a picture out of Israel in Tel Dan. If you go as far north as you can go uh, in Israel to the north, in fact, back over here to what, what would be your right right now, just to, I can pick up a stone and throw it right behind us, are the trenches where the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, fought the Syrians and Hezbollah. Uh, so this is as far north as you can get in Israel. Um, but there, and I just would love to tell you about, I'll take you to this place if you go with me. This is where Jeroboam set up one of the golden calves. You could see the platform is back over here behind me. But he built an altar larger than this altar. It was to the specifications of the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And you see the horns. They've just put up a, a, a metal frame to give you an idea. Uh, but the rocks and everything, that altar sat there, sat there somewhere around 2,700 years ago. Oh, good night. Oh, Wow. You, listen, let me tell you, nobody goes to this place because I had to take you a mile back up into the woods and through a creek to get to it. And so nobody goes, but that is the actual place where they sacrificed to these golden bulls that Jeroboam had set up. Not King Jeroboam, but the wicked um, leader of the 10 northern tribes, Jeroboam. So uh, that gives you an indication of the altar that would have been in the temple. This would have been in the tabernacle. And I'm going to talk about this um, a little bit more. You're not more than three chapters into the word of God when you come to the first sacrifice. And it was performed evidently by God himself because there were animal skins that God took. Uh, he evidently would uh, sacrifice an animal, took the skins, and he clothed Adam and Eve uh, in the third chapter of uh, Genesis. And uh, in just five more chapters, you get to the eighth chapter and you come to the first altar that was ever built. And it was built by Noah. Noah built an altar after the flood to give thanks to God. Then you come to Abraham. Abraham, we're told, and, and I'm sure he probably built more, but we're only given four altars that Abraham built. And the last one that Abraham built was on Mount Moriah. And he built that one on which he would sacrifice Isaac. But you remember the name of God there, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac's life. So then you come to Isaac. Isaac uh, added to the four altars of Abraham, his father, two more altars. He built two altars. When you come to Isaac's son, Jacob, he did not build any altars, but he went back and restored two of the altars of his grandfather, Abraham. Now, what I'm doing is what you can literally do through the Old Testament, and that is you can walk your way through sacrifice and altars practically through the entirety of the Old Testament. You come to the last book, the last prophet, 
Malachi, and God is asking the people, why are you bringing me these sick animals, these diseased and these uh, imperfect animals? Why are you bringing them? Why do you bring me your leftovers? Why do you bring me what I have told you not to bring? And so the Old Testament kind of ends with this whole concept of the people not bringing the right kind of, a, uh, of sacrifice to, to God for sacrifice. You kind of can sweep through the whole But there in Exodus, where we're going to look today, God takes Moses for 40 days, up on that mountain for 40 days, and he gives him a blueprint. I don't know if he's drawing it for him the entire time, if he's showing it to him. I think he sees something, according to what Hebrews tells me, that he's seeing something. God is showing it to him, and God is explaining it all. And one of those things happens to be this altar. Now, if you look at the temple area, uh, that whole, or that tabernacle area, and if I go to the temple, you know I'm talking about the tabernacle, okay? If you go to that tabernacle area, you will see, if you look at it from above, you'll see the altar right there. You can see it. It dominates the outer court. There are two pieces of furniture uh, that are outside the tabernacle One is this great altar right here. It's called the great altar. It's called the high altar, or it's called the brazen altar. And then you have the laver. Next Sunday morning, we're going to look at this. Uh, As the Lord leads, we're going to look at the laver. But I want to show you this altar this morning because it's the first thing. You would come in these gates over here. There are only one set of gates to the east, and blocking your entrance to anything else is this altar. Before you could do anything else in there, when the priests would come in, remember the priests lived all around the outside of the perimeter here. Moses and Aaron over here on the east side, before they could ever go in, they had to go in, they had to stop, and they had to offer up a sacrifice before they could go any further. The altar would demonstrate that altar right there. By the way, let me just... And folks, let me. T- the struggle with me is what do I not tell you? Um, anyway, th- this altar, when you combine it, lasts all the way up to the time when Solomon builds his temple. And if you put this altar together with the, with the altar that Solomon builds when he builds and opens the temple, the altar of God stands for a thousand years. This one stands for hundreds and hundreds of years, the 40 years in the wilderness, but then it goes all the way up to the time of David. Uh, It's 300 years in Shechem. If you go with me and I get to Shechem, now sometimes I can't go down there because the Palestinians are shooting at folks, and I hate hate for y'all to be target practice. I really do. But uh, if they're not, I can take you and I can show you where they put this tabernacle Uh, It was there for 300 years, and the foundation of this thing, not the silver sockets, uh, but the foundation, you can see it in the dirt where the temple or or the tabernacle rested. Well, that thing stood for 300 years at Shechem, and then David eventually is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Now, what that thing did was this. For a thousand years, it essentially said, this is not enough. The tens of thousands of sacrifices that were offered there, the millions, they they said that in the day of Jesus, that when you would go to Passover in Jerusalem, they would possibly sacrifice as as many as a million animals. 
on that one Passover um, weekend. Uh, so the, literally, the thousands, the tens, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of sacrifices offered up on this altar right here said one thing, it's not enough. Enough for right now, for this moment, but it will not last. Will not last. Now, I want you to do this. I want you to look with me, and I'm going to take you, instead of just reading it to you, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment, and I want to read something to you for you to mark down. Hebrews chapter 10, great deal to do with the tabernacle in Hebrews and in Revelation, by the way. Now, the writer of Hebrews comes and he says this in chapter 10, verse 10, by this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Not multiple times, not every week, but one time, once for all. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ is just that powerful. Doesn't need to be but once. So once for all, that's what this thing kept pointing to. It's not enough, but one day there's a perfect sacrifice coming. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering uh, time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Peter will say this, the great fisherman Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, uh, for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, uh, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the body, being made alive in the spirit. So, Three times now, once by Peter, twice here, uh, we're told that Jesus did this and it only needed to be done one single time. That's why we do not sacrifice um, any, anymore. That's why we observe the Lord's table. Um, we do not uh, believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation. We believe, as our forefathers, the Anabaptists, understood scripture correctly, and that is, these are elements. This is simply a piece of bread that represents the body. This is simply the juice that represents the blood. Well, that's why we don't sacrifice. People ask that question, well, why do we not do this? Are the Jews going, you better believe they're going to, and they're ready to do it right now. But that's a whole nother issue. Y'all don't, stop getting me off. Let me get back to my, so let me, let me, let me get to this. Number one, you need to understand that uh, salvation requires an altar. Now, salvation, listen, salvation says we must have an altar and a sacrifice. So I want you to see that salvation requires an altar. Chapter 27 of Exodus, verse 1, and let me begin reading right there. You shall make the altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be one of the piece of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make it its pails and its shovels and its basins, its forks and its fire pans. You shall make its utensils of bronze. You shall make it a grating of network of bronze. And on the net, uh, you shall make four bronze rings at, at uh, its four corners. You shall put 
it breadth, you shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar. See, there's a ledge there. We're just not certain about that. So that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze. Now, what you come to here is this. You come to this altar, which I showed you blocked entrance literally to the tabernacle and to the rest of the courtyard because before you could go any further, you had to stop and a sacrifice had to be offered up. You just didn't wander in and out of the place. You know, well, what if you had to go in there a couple of times a day? You had to stop at that altar and you had to sacrifice a couple of times a day. You just could not walk into the place. And by the way, uh, without the, ex- with the exception of the courtyard, nobody but the, but the Levitical priests could go into the holy place, and nobody but the Aaronic priesthood could go into the Holy of Holies. So, this was like the cross put down in the midst of human history that makes the statement, there is no way to God the Father except through the cross and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what that altar is pointing to. This is the gospel, folks. This is literally the gospel in the Old Testament that God has them a part of, that they're participating in. He is showing them all these things so that they can get it in their head and will understand what all of these things are, like substitution, like atonement, um, uh, like propitiation, All of these concepts, God's showing them in a picture form for a thousand years in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So that by the time Messiah shows up, they should have put the entire puzzle pieces together. It all should fit perfectly together. And when Jesus shows up, they should have embraced him as their Messiah. Because it was so clear in all of this. This was made out of acacia wood. That is, that hard, dense wood that represented the incorruptible nature of Christ. And it was overlaid with brass. Brass and that wood, it was hermetically sealed so that it was airtight. And this was the perfect fire pit because uh, that wood and this brass could contain the heat up to very... If you built a fire as big as this thing is... In here, you're going to have some more heat put off by that. It's five cubits. Now, if we go by an 18-inch cubit that the Israelis did, that the Hebrews did, um, up to Dr. Olford uh, uses, for some reason, a 20, 20 20-and-a-half-foot cubit. I don't know why. That's going to be somewhere around seven-and-a-half feet. That's an 18-inch cubit there, this one. If it is 20-and-a-half, it'd be a little, be about 10 feet square, and it is three cubits high, which is four and a half feet. Um, Not very big, but I want to ask you a question. Does anybody here have a grill at home this bit? You have one home? You could do some serious barbecuing in this thing. They, They absolutely cooked a bunch of food through the years, through a thousand years on this deal right here. Now, under it, you had this lattice work, no floor in it, Uh, so that it was on the ground. Do you remember that we looked at that verse about the altar when God said, if you build an altar, you just make it out of earth? 
No, no, don't, don't cut any stones. Don't engrave anything on the stones. I don't want anybody to look at this and see any kind of figure that they would start, start to worship this piece of equipment, this piece of furniture, just the ground underneath. And then there was a grate that came up halfway. We read about that in other places. There was a grate so that they laid the, the meat in there, not on the burning fire, not on the coal, but they laid it on a grate that was across there so that they could retrieve that meat and the priests would get a portion of it with some of the sacrifices and the people would get a portion of it with some of the sacrifices. So there is the altar there. And the interesting thing about it is that all of the instruments that were made for it, five instruments, five cubits wide, five cubits long, five instruments. They're the pails, the basins, the shovels, uh, the forks, and the, what's the other one? The fire pans. Those five. Now, let me tell you something about five because we keep coming to this multiple of five. Five in Hebrew is the number for grace. That in the middle of sacrifice, God is screaming grace to everybody. As horrid as you think sacrifice might be, what God is saying through all of these things is grace, 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 grace. The sacrifice is an expression of the grace of God. Now, the Word of God tells us this, that there's going to be a shift now for all Jews, and that all Jews now could not just um, sacrifice anywhere they wanted to sacrifice. They had to sacrifice at this altar. Now, go with me to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17, and I want you to listen to this. I have to look over a number of different passages to get all of this in. Uh, but in Leviticus chapter 17, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, this is what the Lord has commanded saying, any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed the blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field. They may bring them into the Lord at the doorway of the tent to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. Now, what you just heard is true. God said, all right, no more sacrificing in your backyards. Now, the first thing is, well, wait a minute. What if I'm going to kill this cow and butcher it up? And we're going to eat it. Well, you're going to get to Moses in, number, in Deuteronomy, and Moses is going to say, if you're going to eat the thing, if you're killing it to eat it, go ahead. That's okay. But you can't sacrifice anywhere else except at this altar right here. There's no other place. God's beginning now to clamp down on all this freestyle worship and all of this copying of other people like the Egyptians, like the Canaanites, and he's clamping down on it. And he says, when you sacrifice, there's only one place. And if you don't, if you're caught sacrificing anywhere else, you're gone. You're outside 
We put you outside the camp of Israel, and you're no longer part of us. Now do this. Go on with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I want you to listen to what he says there. And you're going to begin to pick up a little bit more. Every time you come across this, you get a little bit more. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, this is Moses' parting sermon to the new generation. He says, beginning in verse 1, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God, your fathers, has given you to possess. Now, they're all standing at the, at the, um, at the Jordan, pretty much. They're at the Jordan. And Moses has got this whole new generation, and he says, you guys were not there, um, except for two of you, Joshua and Caleb. Uh, you're all a whole bunch, you're a new crop coming in, and I'm going to give you the whole of the law. He preaches, one, we believe that Deuteronomy is one sermon, that it was Moses' last sermon. And so he preaches this whole thing to all, the whole nation there, and he tells them, I- I'm going to tell you what God's doing, what God has done, what God has said and what God is going to be doing. You shall utterly destroy, verse 2, all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their asherim with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. And what, what in the world did Israel do but that? They copied them again and again and again. So that you come to the psalm. David asked, the psalmist will ask, and he'll say, um, lift up your eyes into the hills. From whence come your strength? Now basically what he's going to tell you is this. You lift up your eyes to the, your, your strength doesn't come from the hills. It's going to come from the Lord, but not the hills. What's up on the hills? All of the pagan places. That's what he's saying. You lift your eyes up there and look at those pagan. That's not where your help comes from. Your help comes from the Lord. Not from that mess up there. That's what he's telling them here. You tear it down. You will not act like this toward the Lord your God. You shall seek the Lord at the place where the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name. There for his dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flock. You get the idea? He's going to turn around. He's going to quote that thing. He's going to say it all over again. Why? Because he's a preacher and he wants them to get it. There is one place where you come to worship God. There is one place where you bring your offering and your tithe and your free will offering. There is one place where you come to sacrifice. Where is that? Where God said to do it. The same reigns true today. Do not despise the gathering of yourselves together. You cannot worship out in a bass boat or on a golf course the way you worship in this place. That is not where God designated his people to gather. If God had designated his people to gather on the golf course or at the lake every single Lord's Day, we'd have a crowd, would we not? A crowd of church people. Y'all want me to get off this? I don't think I will. I think I'll just stay on it for a little bit. Anyway, you get the picture. He's telling his people, I've put my name at a place. 
And it's at that place I want you to gather with one another. And there you will worship. And there you will bring your tithes and your offering. Just all of that. Now listen, if I didn't do this, I could not say it. But I do it so I can say it. I give to a, a, I give to, we give through the course of a year to a lot of different things. But nobody but God in this church gets my tenth. My tithe. It comes here. And what I give beyond that is beyond that. This comes first. Why? Because this is the place God has called me to be a member. Not, to, not just to pass, but to be a member. And when I give, because my wife has had cancer surgery, because her, how many sisters, Lord, how many women are in that family? Uh, her three sisters, her mother, because all of them had cancer. Listen, we may give to the cancer research, but I don't give them my tithe. They're not God. God is God. Everything else is everything else. Okay. I'll, I'll ease up off of that. But you get, the, you get the idea right here that salvation requires an altar. Let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this, is that the salvation also demands a sacrifice. It demands a sacrifice. God gives every specific instruction about what can be sacrificed, and then he gives difficult instructions about how the sacrifice is to be made. And I want to show you just a little bit of that. So go from the altar there over to Leviticus chapter 1, and let me show you just something about these sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 1, if you remember back a couple of years ago, the very first Sunday of COVID, I started in Leviticus. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, I don't need to be preaching Leviticus this morning. I need to preach something else. But I didn't know what to do. And we were shooting it from the study in my home, in the house there, in the study at the house. And Debbie was shooting it. And, I, and so I just stood there and preached the first sacrifice, the whole burnt offering. And then I went through the five sacrifices. There are five sacrifices. What does that say again? You keep coming up on this whole thing of five. Five. The grace of God in the sacrifice. In the sacrifice, you find the grace of God. There's the whole burnt offering. There's the grain offering. Now, that's the only one that doesn't require blood. Uh, you can read about that. It's a thanksgiving offering to God. Then you come to the peace offering. Then you, and that can be either male or female in the peace offering. Now, hold on because I'm going to go back and show you some things here. Then you come to the sin offering that has to be a bullock, a bull, that's a male. And then you come to the transgression offering or the guilt offering. And that generally is going to be a ram, which is a male. So now, let me, in, in saying all of that, let me show you several things about these offerings that maybe you've never thought of before. Number one, they all had to be an animal with the exception of the grain offering. That's why Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable to God. When they came once a year to offer up an offering for their sin, the sin offering couldn't be anything but blood. And the reason it couldn't be anything but blood is because, let me read you something out of uh, Leviticus chapter 17. Let me go back there and let me read this one verse there. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Uh, Not grain, not anything that comes out of the earth, nothing but an animal had to be sacrificed because of the blood. And it had to be a specific animal. And uh, I can't go into all of that. I've given some of it to you, but I can't go into it other than to say blood had to be sacrificed. And on the horns of the altar is where the priest would come and take that blood and he would wipe that blood on this horn of the altar. Kind of interesting. Just hang on to that. Just hold on to it. We'll get to it. I promise you. Anyway. I got, I got to move faster than this. You've, so you've got those offerings right there. There's, there. It has to be an animal. Number two, it must be male. In most cases, it has to be male. And you say, well, uh, you know, why, why is that? Why does it have to be a male? I think there are two good reasons. Number one, um, I, I'd love to go through some of the New Testament and show you that every time there's a major issue that comes up, whether it's with Jesus, John, Paul, Peter, they all go back to creation story. They all of them go straight back to the creation, to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Well, it was not, um, it was not Adam that was deceived. Eve was deceived. But being deceived, she did not really grasp what Adam knew. And the reason, I think, one, it must be male is because he knew that this was a deliberate rejection of God's word. So it had to be Adam. It had to be the male. Because Jesus is going to come as what? Now this leads me to the second point, the second Adam. And it must be a male so that they would see on the altar a male. A male is coming who will be the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God. Well, let me move on from that. Number three, it's without defect. I've already shared with you that Malachi asked the people, God asked the people, why are you bringing me the halt, the lame, the sick, the weak, the runts of the herd? God wanted only the best. He wanted the perfect so that it would demonstrate that only the perfect would be acceptable to God, and the perfect is Jesus Christ. It has to be given freely. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about this. Don't give begrudgingly or under compulsion, but give cheerfully. If you give to the church and it irritates you to give, I'd tell you to stop. Yes, you heard it. A preacher said it. Stop. If you can't give it with love and adoration for a Savior that got on a cross and gave his all to you, God doesn't need your money. Paul says, give and give cheerfully. Give generously. That's why it had to be a gift, an animal, freely given This is mine, and I'm giving it to God. And number five, it can only be accepted after the Israelite, and you see that here in chapter one, places his hand 
on the head of the animal. He would bring either the lamb, the ram, the bullock, whatever he brought up. He had to bring it up to the altar. He would lay his hands on it. And in laying his hands on it, he was identifying with the animal and he was acknowledging, God, this animal will substitute for me. Instead of me going on the altar, this animal will go and I will trust that you will accept this animal's blood and sacrifice for me. That's called substitution. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. He died in your place instead of you. Now, I have four, I'm 15 seconds over, and so I've got to just cut and give you the last thing. And the last thing that I want to share with you is this, is that at the altar, you will find a place of division. Do you remember? Do you remember when Jesus tells the disciples, uh, he comes to him and he says, um, in that day, Matthew chapter 25, it's in the, the Mount Olivet Discourse. Jesus is referring to the second coming. And he says, in that day, he says, I will separate out the nations. I'll separate out the people, the sheep on this side, the goats on that side. When you come to this altar, when you come to the cross, you come to a place of division. Now, I've got to show you something. And even if it takes a few extra minutes, I, I want you to see this. Um, those horns on that altar happen to be the most prominent thing that you really see. Uh, God tells them, I want you to build that thing uh, with, uh, two with a horn on each corner. And back in Exodus chapter 21, he has told them that I am going to give you, I will appoint you a place to which you may flee. He's talking about manslaughter. What if a man innocently is a part of another man's death? He says, well, we're not going to, you know, if you kill a man, if a man kills a man and it's on purpose, we're going to put you to death. You know, if we'd follow some of this stuff, there'd be a real drop in crime real quick in America. Just real quick. If there's a, if there's a guy that's caught and there's an accident and the guy dies and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a place of refuge. And then there become these cities of refuge um, that sometimes it's a great, great concept that is there the city of refuge. He says, I'm going to give you a place of refuge. Do you know what became the place of refuge? The horns of the altar. Two men, first Kings chapter one, just go ahead and look there. First Kings chapter one, you're going to come to two men. David is dying. Adonijah, David's son, uh, along with Abiathar, the priest, has gone ahead and declared himself king. Daddy's not even dead yet. And he's declared himself king, and he's throwing himself a big banquet. And um, Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, uh, the, the son of Jehoiada, and uh, Bathsheba come to David. They all let Bathsheba go in first. You go in there first. Well, this is what I'm telling you what it said. He said, you go in there first. Nathan told you go on in there. And when you get to a certain place, I'll come in. So she goes in there and she says, David, you don't know this, but Adonijah has proclaimed himself king. And you remember, you told me my son Solomon was going to be king. And Nathan hears that and he says, okay, I'll make my entrance now. So he comes in and he's telling him the same thing. And he's saying, you know, we need to, we need to, we need to correct this before you, you're going to die any minute. We need to make a correction here, David, so that this is your decision and not Adonijah's decision. 
Well, David says, you're right, Bathsheba. I promised it to Solomon. And uh, I want Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaniah, my mighty man. That's going to become the general after Joab. Benaniah is going to go in there. You remember Benaniah? Benaniah killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. You know me preach on that? I could just start light off into that. That's a great message too. What a great passage. All these wonderful people that are here. And so he says, okay, go get Solomon. Let's get him on. He said, we're going to anoint him and we're going to put him on the throne right now. Word gets to Adonijah. Adonijah says, the jig's up. This means I'm going to die. Solomon's going to kill me. So he runs to the tabernacle and he grabs a hold of the horn of the altar. He gets there, and they go in there to get him and listen to what he says. Nope, 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 nope. Not going to turn loose of this thing. He's taking hold of the horns of the altar saying, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death. Please don't kill me. Whatever you do. Evidently what I did was not right. Please don't kill me. Just don't put me to death. Solomon said, if he's a worthy man, not one of his hairs will fall to the ground But if he is wicked and wickedness is found in him, he'll die. So they get him and they bring him down to Solomon and he came and he prostrated. He bowed himself down completely on the floor before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, get up and go home. You're all right, going home. He gave him grace and he gave him mercy. Now, I can't tell you the rest of the story, but the guy is stupid. Is all I can say. He's going to end up dying because of his, his own stupidity. He's gotten grace. He's gotten mercy. He ran to refuge to the horns of the altar. Now, I had some help in all of this. Adonijah had the help of Joab, who had been David's general. And he sees that David is dying, and he decides, I'm going to stand with Adonijah. And when he finds out what has happened, Joab runs, and he grabs hold of the horns of the altar. But he doesn't ask for his life. He's just as defiant as he can be. He goes there. It was told Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord. And behold, he is beside the altar, and Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go fall upon him. So Benai came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, thus the king has said, come out. But he said, nope, I'm going to die right here. If you're going to kill me, you're going to have to kill me right here. And Benai said, sure, we'll do that too. And they kill him. He doesn't ask for anything. Just in defiance, he thinks this is a magic charm. Now, I won't take you to Luke chapter 23. but I want to take you to two men in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, you're going to find the horn of an altar called a cross. A cross sticks up just like that horn on the altar. It's where the blood was put that was sacrificed from the sacrifice. It's on that cross that the blood of Jesus is going to be shed And Jesus is there between two thieves. It's what we're told. I believe they were insurrectionists as well. One is mocking him, casting aspersions on him, making fun of him. He said, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Christos? 
Aren't you the Messiah? That's what it meant, the anointed one. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us if you're the Messiah. Just laughing at him, making fun of him while he's crucified. The guy on the other side now says, hey, don't you fear God even in the moment that you're dying? Isn't there any reverence that you, is there no reverence at all in you? He says, we're, he confesses his sin. He says, we're up here because we're getting what we deserve. We deserve this. We're sinners. And he confesses it. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, but he's done nothing wrong. He recognizes the sinlessness of the Savior. And then the verb tense is he begins to cry out and say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood in some way he was Messiah and that there was a kingdom that he was headed off to. He didn't understand the gospel. Everybody has seen uh, Alistair Begg's famous quote on this. When they asked this thief how he got into heaven, and he just simply said, I don't know. The man in the middle said I could come. But this morning, my focus is on the other guy. Because he never repents. You can see in Adonijah a sense of repentance that is there. It's not real. But you can see it. He comes and he grabs the horns of the altar. And he goes before Solomon, prostrate. There's one thief who acknowledges his sin and asks Jesus to just remember him. And there's one who doesn't. And for all we know, dies and goes into utter darkness for eternity. You see, it's not enough to go and grab a hold of the horns of the altar. Because it's not the horn of the altar that saves you. It's the sacrifice. It's not even enough to go to Calvary. Or to get on a cross yourself. You can go to Calvary, die, and still go to hell. What you've got to do is go to Calvary and put your trust in the Savior who died there. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.